God's Word. We're going to be in Luke chapter 11 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, the, uh, the entire passage is there in the bulletin, so you can just follow there. Again, I want to say welcome in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. We're glad you're here. And this is my first Sunday back after several months, and it's, uh, it's really great to see, to see you. And I'm, I'm going to spend a few seconds on this, and it's all I'm going to say. Just in the last, uh, whew, whew, in the last few months, uh, just in a million ways, you've been so kind. You've, you've been kind on the front end of the sabbatical. You've been kind as we came back in. You were kind in the middle and uh, in praying for us and just in encouragement and in giving us um, space. Everything, all that you did here in our absence, um, a particular thank you to Jake. I've told him that, but I just kind of want to say that with all of us here. Um, thank you, elders, for not just approving of a sabbatical, but smiling on it and giving it a big thumbs up. I can't wait for the one next year. Um, <laughs> so excited and planning already. Thank you to the deacons, but thank you to members and, and, and regulars who were just were doing things and being the church. Thank you, thank you. Love y'all. We're going to be in Luke chapter 11 this morning. And, um, you know, y- y'all have been so kind about asking, well, how was it? How was the trip? And, and a, a, a four-month block of our sabbatical, our, our whole family was in England. A lot of you have asked, how was England? And sort of my standard answer has been, it was sensory overload. And a lot of that was because of museums. I just, I saw more ancient, valuable stuff in a four-week period than I think I'll ever see again. And the museums just in Cambridge, where we lived, were phenomenal. And more on that later. In great detail, with lots of pictures, and uh, to to a boring degree. But in some ways, the definitive British Museum is aptly named, some of you may have been, the British Museum in London. Sensory overload, mind-boggling what's in those walls. And in some ways, one of the most mind-boggling objects they have, in some ways, it's kind of the logo of the British Museum, is the Rosetta Stone. There are replicas of it in different places around the world, but the Rosetta Stone is almost in the, in the middle of the British Museum. The Rosetta Stone, you probably know this story, it was discovered late 1700s by a French soldier in Egypt, and it's this just monolith, big, heavy stone with three languages. Egyptian hieroglyphs and a language, uh, demotic script, and then ancient Greek. And the reason this is just such a -a one-of-a-kind artifact and it's so incredibly valuable is that this was the key that unlocked Egyptian hieroglyphs. This is how they were deciphered, was the discovery of this stone. It was the key to unlocking how to understand these just images and this, this writing unknown to us. Now, one of our core, core, not just, I won't just say one, I'll say the core commitment of our church is to the centrality of the Word of God. And whenever I've been away, when I get back in the pulpit, I kind of just go back to Square one, all right, we just sang Amazing Grace, and now I'm going to preach on the Bible and how the Bible says the Bible is important. So square 1.000. But what I want to look at is this. When we come together, because of our commitment to Scripture, we, we, 
we read Scripture, we sing Scripture, we preach Scripture, we, we, we say it, respond, we just we gather around it. When we gather in small groups, community groups as a church, we do, we talk about our weeks, we chat, we, you know, compare notes, have fun, eat together, but we gather around not just our feelings or our experiences or our week. We gather around the Scriptures. So it's worth pausing and looking at this passage because in this passage, Jesus is talking in the Gospel of Luke to a, a pretty set, focused group of people who read the Scriptures and study the Scriptures, and memorize the Scriptures, and sing the Scriptures, and meditate on the Scriptures, and He pronounces woe on them. And we don't really have an English term that gets at what that means, but, but woe isn't just you're in trouble. Woe is the wrath of God is almost on you now. To peop- he says that to people who read it, and memorize it, and talk about it, and apparently love it. And apparently he's saying there's a way to be a Scripture person and miss it. And so as we go back to square one, what is Jesus' critique of how to really be a Bible person and get it wrong? Luke 11, beginning in verse 37. I'm really going to focus just on the last few verses, but I'm going to read this whole passage for context. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse uh, cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give his alms those things that are within... And behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers. For they killed them, And you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you lawyers! For you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Amen. Let's pray together.
Our Heavenly Father, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word stands forever. Enable us to hear it. Would you cause it to go down into our hearts, wherever we are? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. About two years ago, after one of our midweek Bible studies, it was the, uh, the men's Bible study, we had been talking about the Pharisees. And if you know anything about the Gospels, the Pharisees, they don't come across well in the Gospels. I think it's, I think it's fair to say. And we were just were talking about how did they treat the law and how did they treat other people and how did they respond to Jesus when He came along. So we got through with the Bible study and uh, closed in prayer and some people are visiting. And one of the guys came up to me afterward and he said, you know, I'm getting to where I really sympathize with these guys. And when I asked him what he meant, he said, I, I just... You know, I kind of used to look at them like cartoon characters, like, yeah, those are the guys that are mean to Jesus, and, you know, I ought to, and, you know, I wish they would have gotten it right, and, boy, they sure don't understand what I understand. But just as, as I'm listening to them and I'm thinking, if all I had was what we call the Old Testament, and I did not have the Gospels, and I did not have the rest of the New Testament, I think I would have been the same way. If I was going to try to be devout, I think my devotion would have looked like that in the way I think about God's laws and who God is and people who aren't Jews, who aren't believers. I think I would have been like them. Now, I just want you to tuck that away for for a little, little while from now because that is the work of the Holy Spirit. Where when you read about the Pharisees and the scribes, they come up all the time. Jesus critiques them severely. And as they come up again and again in the Gospels, it is folly to read them and just think, mm, idiots. I guess they just didn't know John 3.16. Yeah, it hasn't been written yet. It is wisdom to look at them and begin to see yourself, to begin to see ourselves. Um, this is a famous text. There's a parallel in Matthew chapter 23 where Jesus sort of takes a deep breath. And this is at the home of a Pharisee. This is not in the temple or out on the street. This is in a Pharisee's home with Pharisees and scribes present. And he just lets it go. And it's all righteous. It's not sinful anger. As he does this, here, here's what I want to look at. First off, who are the lawyers? And there will be no sarcastic jokes in this portion of the sermon, all right? This is not about our kind of lawyers. These are biblical lawyers. Who are the lawyers? Why is Jesus so upset with them? And what does this mean for us? Who are the lawyers? Why is Jesus so upset with them? What does this mean for us? Who are the lawyers? There are terms that you'll bump into in the Gospels, and they're, they're basically synonymous terms. Scribes, lawyers, teachers of the law, or experts in the law. Those are essentially the same guys. They're a lot like the Pharisees. Uh, these were... It's interesting. These were, in, in the Jewish community, men who held both uh, a, a civil authority and a religious authority. 
the civil authority was because it's a Jewish community. If they give a verdict about something, if they give a biblical uh, binding opinion about something, that might really affect your personal life. It might really affect your personal approach to your business or your family or some decision you're going to make. And just the, just the, the culture on the street, it affected it. But big time, they're religious leaders. PhD level. I mean, there's some people that have letters in front of their name that don't need to have letters in front of their name. They had doctoral level of mastery of just the data in the Law and the Prophets. And I'll give you an example of that. Earlier in Luke, this is the part that we read around Christmas, when the Magi came looking for the one who was, quote, born the king of the Jews. It was very upsetting to King Herod because one of his titles was the king of the Jews. But he understood that what they're looking for is the Jewish Messiah. And so he needs to know, because he wants to preserve his own throne, he needs to know where do the Jews think the Jewish Messiah will be born. So guess who he went to? He went to these guys. And just, I mean, without even looking up, they said, uh, the prophet Micah says in Bethlehem, which was correct. Nailed it. Because they knew. They studied, memorized, compared notes on, debated about, processed the Scriptures. They sung them. They said them. They gathered around them. And they wanted people to practice them. If I stood up here and just started going down a list of of doctrinal affirmations that our church would hold to, And when you think about just kind of core Christian commitments, there is only one God, Elohim, Yahweh. Jake was talking about this last week. This God made everything seen and unseen. He did not make it out of preexistent material. He created all things out of nothing. There, There was no creature before man that led to man. He created man from the dust, male and female. Men and women bear His image. Uh, marriage is between one man and one woman. If I, if I just listed all those affirmations biblically, a scribe or a lawyer could be sitting here and say, Amen. And it's in the home of a Pharisee around the table that when one of the lawyers hears this just dressing down of the Pharisees, he says, Well, you know, when you say that, you're insulting us also. Bad move. Because now then the light goes on him. Woe to you lawyers also. And I want you to feel the weight of this. The woe is on men who are Bible people. Orthodox Bible people. We should pause and think about that because we want to be Bible people. And orthodoxy is not a bad word. That doesn't always have to mean dryness or deadness. We want to be orthodox, historic Christian people. Why is Jesus so upset? Let me start off negatively, because I want to just kind of head this one off at the pass. He's not upset because they study it too much. He's not upset because they talk about it too much or read it too much. And one way you know that is another passage at the beginning of Luke. And this is just about the only snapshot we have of Jesus at this age. It's when his family goes to Jerusalem, and they've been around the temple, and then the family starts going home, and they think that Jesus, the parents think that Jesus is with some other family members, and they come to realize that he's not. Uh, They realize this days later. 
So not helicopter parents, we, we would say. And they, so they, they look and they search and they, and they worry and they go to the temple and they find Jesus talking to whom? The lawyers. He's 12 years old and, and they are enjoying him and he is enjoying them. And they're marveling at where did this young man get this understanding of the law and the prophets? He is incredible. You never hear Jesus critique the Pharisees or the scribes and say, your problem is you read it too much. Your problem is you memorize it too much. And I just want to say this on the front end. Let's never say that we want to follow Jesus if we don't want to spend tons of time in the Scripture. He did. Let's never say that we want to follow in His way if we don't want to sing it and memorize it and meditate on it. He did. To follow in His way is to engage in that. So what does it mean? And I really want to just hone in on verse 52. This particular woe. He says, Woe to you lawyers, experts in the Scripture. You have taken away the key of knowledge. As if to say, there's a Rosetta Stone for the Law and the Prophets. And you could have used it, but you took it away and you made it harder for those who were trying to use that on the door. And that's the next thing he says. You did not enter yourselves and you hindered those who were entering. What does that mean? He doesn't say, you've taken away the key of knowledge, and what I mean by that is blank. He just uses that metaphor. The metaphor is tied to what he says next. You did not enter. And you hindered those who were entering. What does Jesus mean by enter? That's a very, very common Greek verb. It's all through the Gospels. When, when it's used and, and you're the subject, it means one of two things. It either means you're going into a physical location, the temple, a city, the house, or the kingdom of God. The unseen kingdom of God, and that is a gigantic theme for Jesus and in the Scriptures, is the kingdom of God. You would not enter it for all your study and memorization, and you're making it harder for people who either have entered or want to enter. Now, this is where I want to come back to what one of, one of our guys said. But if all I had was the Old Testament, wouldn't we all do that? I mean, if all you had was the Old Testament, and then someone comes along and makes himself out to be God, and you had no New Testament... Wouldn't the devout thing to do be to say, No, blasphemy. There's only one true God. How dare you make yourself equal with God? Everything you're teaching is suspect. Wouldn't that be the devout thing to do? And the, okay, the reason there's a second passage in your bulletin is, in some ways, this is the answer to that question. And again, this is from the same gospel earlier in the gospel of Luke. And Luke tells us a very important piece of information for understanding Pharisees and lawyers. Jesus says, 
I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. He means John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now get this editorial comment from Luke. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, the bad people, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by Him. What does that mean? It means that, according to the Gospel writers, when John the Baptist is out in the wilderness and he looked like a wild man, he looked like a caveman, dressed in camel hair and a leather belt and eats locusts and honey. If you're going to eat locusts, you better believe you're going to dip them in honey. (laughs) Just kind of wild, caveman-looking prophet. And when you go out there, he doesn't just tickle your ears. I mean, you'll come out to him at great inconvenience and he might call you a snake. But what is he telling everybody? He's saying, the Messiah is coming. God has sent me. Fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. God has sent me to get you ready for the coming of the Messiah. And what does that look like? John's baptism was not a Christian baptism. John's baptism was a preparation baptism for the Messiah. Because what it pushed you to do or to reject was to go to the Jordan River and confess your sins. Go to that river. There's nothing magical about the river. That's just where we're doing it. Go to the Jordan River and own verbally how the law of Moses finds you guilty. If you'll do that and John will wash you with water, you're ready for the coming of the Messiah. And... Okay, God not... Here's what I want you to hear. It's God who sends him. Very powerful, visible, audible. Get ready. And then John sees Jesus and identifies him publicly in front of everybody. That's the Lamb of God. And he, he takes away the sins of the world. And he tells other people, that's the Lamb of God. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Christ. I need to decrease. He needs to increase. All right, let's go back to the question. Yeah, but like, what if I thought that John was a false prophet? How would I know that he's right about Jesus? Well, after the first few times that the guy he identifies as the Lamb of God raises dead people to life and begins to eradicate disease from Judea, that would be a good indicator. And that he speaks like no man ever spoke. If this man is from God and he takes away the sins of the world, and the gospel writers say, all Judea, all Jerusalem went out to John with the exception of one demographic, the Pharisees and the lawyers, would not go. But they would wield the Scriptures at the drop of a hat. Now, you take all that. You won't enter. You hinder those who enter. You would not undergo John's baptism. Now we're beginning to understand, what is the key of knowledge of Scripture? I mean, we could say the key of knowledge is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
But if you'd never met him, what is the key? The key of knowledge is that the scriptures must first address my heart. And the wording there is important because what, actually even in my notes, what I had written first was the scriptures must first address me. And that's insufficient. Because if what you think the Bible speaks to is just external things, external behaviors, external actions, and you feel like you have gotten your externals in order, then you could say the scriptures apply to me first and I've gotten my house in order and now the scriptures are going to apply to you. And never engage the heart. But Jesus looks at the heart, doesn't he? Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. He talks about things like, what are your real loves? He says to the Pharisees at the beginning of this session, you know, you neglected the love of God. And I'm not trying to be flippant when I say this, but, you know, uh, and last time I checked Pharisees, that's a somewhat dominant biblical theme. But you you neglect the love of God in the midst of all the traditions. What you do love is when you get attention. You love it when people revere you. You love the seats of honor at a banquet or in the synagogue. That your heart loves. Your heart is engaged, but not from the Word of God. It is kept at an external level where you think you've mastered it, and now you're going to wield it at inferiors. You have taken away the key of knowledge when you do that. Think about this from a couple of other ways. Excuse me. Um, On the one hand, look at how dark this can be. Did, did Did you notice how ironic the ending is? As he went away from there, from that conversation, which was just jarring, The scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. They're doing it then. Can you imagine, this may have happened to you, what if you had a friend and in love and through all the awkwardness of it, you sat down with a friend of yours and said, look, I'm very concerned about you. I love you dearly. I've known you for years. I know you. I'm your friend. And I'm for you no matter what. But I'm very concerned that when you get under great stress or when you're dealing with pain, that the way you deal with it is you get drunk. What if your friend came away from a difficult but very real gesture of love and they grab their journal and they go to a bar and they start drinking for the next four hours and they journal furiously about your insensitivity. And you found out about it. Wouldn't you be thinking, that's proof of what I'm saying. You're validating the exact point. And I'm not glad you're validating That's what I'm talking about. He just went to the heart of hearts of who these guys are as the Pharisees and the lawyers. You've got to deal with God in your heart. And what is the response? You know what? If there's even a 1% chance he's right, we need to repent. No, it's we'll catch him next time. That's dark. But let me give a little more encouragement here. In Mark chapter 12... He records that 
toward the end of Jesus' ministry, a scribe came up to Jesus and asked him, what's the greatest command? Trick question. And Jesus quotes the Shema. Preached on that a while back. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. The greatest commandments. And the scribe says, Teacher, you've answered well. God is only one. And to love Him with all your heart and soul and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself, that's more important than all whole burnt offerings or sacrifices. And you know what Jesus said to him? You are not far from the kingdom of God. Because finally, finally, I've gotten a scribe. Instead of talking about traditions and externals, you're talking about love, which is an activity of the what? Heart. And loving God and loving people will rattle you in a way that externals never will. So here's my question. How does this affect us? I've got a friend. I don't know how to explain this. He uses this phrase when I see him. Like if, if I walked into his house and I was wearing my, uh, my boots, I know exactly what he would say because I don't normally wear boots. I used to, but I don't much anymore. I'll let Jake take that department of our, our church. Uh, if I walked into this friend's house wearing boots, he, he, he would look at me and go, Hey, Big, are you going all boots on me? That is the way he would say it. Are you going all boots on me? Or are you going, are you going boots? He, he, let, me, let me take his phraseology and ask this question of us. Are we going lawyer? L- let's ask ourselves some questions. And we're speaking in the first person. Am I as I interact with Scripture, becoming more and more angry about someone else's sin? Am I angrier about someone else's sin than my own? And the other could be some group out there that affects our culture. Political leaders, political party, ideology, sexual viewpoint. Am I angrier about their sin than my own? As I interact and study, interact with and study Scripture, is it making me more tender or more critical? When is the last time, simply from reading the Bible, whenever you might do that, or I might do that, that I closed it and thought, before the sun sets, I need to apologize to someone. Uh, Do you mean to God or to people? Yes. When, When I encounter someone who is struggling morally, ethically, Is my first inclination to empathize with them, identify with them, or is it to teach them? First impulse. Are sermons things that I endure and assess? Or are sermons something I come to worship 
and open my heart to. Because those are diagnostic questions that start to show us, am I going lawyer? And my hope is that we're starting to identify with them because there's a lot of us in these words. And people can smell it if they walk in and this starts to become entrenched. It's in our hearts. The Pharisees didn't start out as like, you know, a drug gang. (laughs) They started out as a reform movement to say, this is God's Word, it's important. We've got to be serious about this. This is God, we're the chosen people of God. We've got to obey. Those are good impulses. Something kicked in. And I want to end on this note. If, as, as we're talking about this, if you think, man, I, that, that could be me. Take heart already, that is the Holy Spirit. And think about this. Think about the part in italics from Luke 7. Think about it says, the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected what? John the Baptist's plans? The Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose. If one lawyer or one scribe or Pharisee had, for whatever reason, finally gone out to the river and said, you know what, as hard as this is to say, as much as it galls me, I am guilty of violating the law law of God. And I need washing. I need Messiah to come. Mercy would have flowed. That's God that sent sent him. It's God, that's God's purpose to do that in people's lives. And just for our encouragement before we leave, I I want to leave you with a story of someone who was of an academic type, um, a lawyer, and what God did. This is a book by a German New Testament scholar passed away a few years ago named Etta Linnemann. Not a household name. This is an academic work she wrote about Jesus' parables. This is an English translation of it. I got it from a local library. If you had been in high-level academic New Testament scholarship a few decades ago and you were doing something on the parables, you would have interacted with this book, almost certainly, Etta Linnemann. And the German academic environment that she came up with is rigorous. She was brilliant. But she did not believe it. She was a brilliant New Testament scholar, and she did not believe it. She had studied under a scholar named Rudolf Bultmann, who essentially explained away the supernatural from the New Testament. And she said she looked up as this, uh, I guess you'd say, successful academic New Testament scholar. And by the way, this story starts nerdy, and it gets great at the end, so hang with me. And she begins to realize two things. Um, All the people that that I work with, we can't agree what the New Testament really is about. And number two, this has no power to change anybody. And that just began to get all over her. And so here's what she says about it. What I realized led me into profound disillusionment. This is another book, and this is from her introduction. 
What I realized led me into profound disillusionment. I reacted by drifting toward addictions, which might dull my misery. I became enslaved to watching television and fell into an increasing state of alcohol dependence. My bitter personal experience finally convinced me of the truth of the Bible's assertion, whoever finds his life will lose it. She knew that text, probably had it memorized in the Greek, and then it devastated her. Uh, Let me go to the end here. She becomes a Christian. Unbelievable. She is a New Testament scholar. She becomes a Christian. When she's not looking for God, when she's drunk in front of her TV set, disillusioned, God bursts in, and all these scriptures that she knows just went... That must have been like what it was for Paul. Paul knew all these scriptures and did not believe in Jesus. And God works in his heart. Wham! All these things make sense. Here's how she ends this introduction. For the first time, these things touch her heart. She says, not because of human talk, but because of the testimony of the Holy Spirit in my heart. I have clear knowledge that my former perverse teaching was sin. At the same time, I am happy and thankful that this sin has forgiven me because Jesus bore it on the cross. That is why I say no to my former theology. And then she lists her two most famous books, and she says, Whatever of these writings I had in my possession, I threw them into the trash with my own hands in 1978. And I ask you sincerely to do the same thing with any of them that you may have on your own bookshelf. If she went in the local library and found this, she would destroy it. Isn't that great? Because God burst in... He burst in and gave someone eyes to see that, look, you need mercy. And that's what I've been offering. Look to Jesus. If you're here this morning and you're starting to feel conviction, new Christian, decades-long Christian, that you've been a lawyer, go to Him for mercy. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, even legalism in our hearts, even lawyer tendencies in our hearts. If you're here this morning and you don't know if you have eternal life, Jesus is the Lamb of God. He takes away the sins of the world. Do you hate hypocrisy? Do you hate self-righteous religious people? Jesus critiqued them severely. But He critiques our sin too says, look to me and be saved. And you will be. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, would you, would you on the one hand grant us repentance and clarity to see how we have had lawyer tendencies that, that rather than be brokenhearted about our own sin, we're angry at someone else's sin that rather than uh, be brokenhearted about how we have treated family or friends or our community, we're angry about how someone else has treated our family or friends or community. Be merciful to us. And then would you enable us to dive into the Word, the law and the prophets and the gospels, and 
the epistles and all the books and see how the message is one. That you'll be our God and we'll be your people. You offer mercy to sinners. We can't change ourselves, so we look to you and say, please change us through your word. Make us pick it up. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We come now to the Lord's table.